You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. When you look dispassionately at the credit statistics out there, you're seeing enormous amounts of uh, debt relative to, the, to asset values. You're seeing structures that are very, very weak, where people are not appro getting appropriately protected as creditors at the top of a capital stack. At the extremes, if I have incredibly weak covenants and I charge a really small coupon, well, then I can have no defaults. There are a subset of um, opportunities available mm -hmm. that are effectively self-liquidating. So you can be effectively someone who benefits from the lack of liquidity, right, by having a bid when people don't want it in that subset of situations that are self-liquidating so you yourself don't need that bid. What is inevitable is either a crisis or a long-term malaise. Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. I'm talking to Dan Zwarn, who is the CEO of Arena Investors. Dan, great to have you here for Debt Week. Thanks for having me. I think before we came on camera, I was telling you off camera that we're having what's called Debt Week. And you know, we're, we're at the beginning of 2020, and the reason that we're talking about debt is just because a lot of people don't understand that debt is actually a bigger market than the equity market. Is it, that's right, isn't it? Yes, the debt markets overall are far larger than the equity markets and across uh, loans and, and mortgages and tradable bonds. Uh, and treasuries and all the different obligations are out there. There's an enormous number of uh, things to choose from when you're thinking about uh, playing the markets. And give me a sense of the size of the, the comparative size of the markets. Because when I look on uh, television, I get the sense that it's all about stocks. Right. Yeah. Well, you can imagine uh, there are literally trillions of different uh, opportunities out there. And, and in fact, we've never had more debt than we do now because of the tremendous amount of issuance that happened over the last 10 years. So a lot of that debt ends up getting bought by uh, the very same people who issue it when you think about the sovereigns uh, globally. Uh, but it, basically, if you're, if you're an owner of an asset, there's never been a better time to raise debt against it. Now, you know, we're going to do sort of a soup to nuts conversation on debt because my understanding is you look at a full panoply of different markets uh, yes. where, you know, there are potential dislocations. I think of it, there's this term that I came across called fingers of instability that accumulate over time. And then at, at stressful points, maybe you'll have a, a trigger and, you know, it will cause a mini uh, a crisis or a larger crisis like we had in 2008. But your thesis is basically that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, when we get to the next crisis. Yeah, I think there's two parts of it. First of all, there's always some combination of industry, product, and geography where there's kind of a debt crisis in, uh, ongoing, whether that's due to a particular um, issuer or a particular country or, or other geography like a Puerto Rico or a Greece or an Italy, or whether that's related to a particular industry like oil and gas, there's always something going on. And so... Um, when we look at all of the things out there, we're always comparing risk reward and thinking, you know, where are people running from so that we can kind of take a look at where we might want to might want to uh, place ourselves. Uh, at the same time, overall, there can be uh, there's uh, ev at the end of the day, everything's correlated, and so there are times of extremes like in 08 uh, or 0102 or 98 or 94. Uh, where a lot of the issues that arise in one or more markets start to kind of bleed into the other ones. In an ideal world, we'd like to avoid kind of macro views generally mm -hmm. because markets can be, uh, if you will, stupid longer than you can be solvent, so to speak. Uh, and so we try to focus on where the actual uh, idiosyncratic or alpha-related um, distortions are the greatest. One of the things, I, I guess, uh, that I'm thinking about is the length of this, uh, of this credit cycle or this uh, business cycle. And you hear the term that we're near the end of the cycle, and as a result, these kinds of issues are things that we want to talk about. Um, before I go into what those issues are, because I think you have an interesting framework, I mean, what, what is that term, uh, we're late cycle, what does that mean to you? Well, I would say it, it's, it's hard to discern in uh -huh. that we simply, as a statistical matter, don't have that many data points. Uh, depending on who you, look, uh, who you speak to and the data that you look at, 
perhaps we have 100 or 300 or 600 years of data, depending on what, what, what markets you examine. And so to draw any particular conclusions other than you know, what, what goes up must come down uh, is difficult. Right. Certainly since 08, uh, we have had a series of um, basically market distortions created by primarily developed market uh, monetary authorities um, that preclude actual risk from being appropriately priced. So it's been a long, long time since there's been legitimate price discovery in the markets. Uh, and at the end of the day, when you look at even equities, equities are ultimately a derivative of cre the credit markets, right? They're just the thing at the bottom of the capital stack. And so, uh, and, and over time, people compare dividend yields on stocks with uh, yields on, on debt. And so that entire um, structure has been distorted uh, by monetary authorities effectively underpricing uh, the front end of the term structure of risk reward. And so what we have is a, is a whole series of distortions that have arisen when that bubble ultimately pops, unclear, because when you keep rates you know, flat or negative and, and there's very, very little premium uh, uh, put on top of those rates uh, to price risk, uh, ultimately issuers that are not terribly credit worthy can frequently afford to pay very, very minimal rates to sustain a, a level of principle. Yes. And particularly when structures are really weak um, can kind of live to fight another day for years and years and years. And so when we look at the world, we don't want to uh, focus on what the greater fool may do or what might, might happen. And so we try to focus on places where those distortions have presented themselves, typically in some particular, again, geography or industry, et cetera, that allow us to kind of um, hopefully take advantage. And I want to get to that, the specific markets that we're going to be talking about. But first, let's go to your framework in terms of what you're thinking about in terms of where these fingers of instability are. That's because since 2008, there have been some institutional changes within debt markets. And I think you enumerated five recently yes. Yes. that are critical to thinking about how this could play out. Can you go through you know, step by step? Maybe we'll go through the, the, the five one by one after the next. Sure. Well, so I, I would first say uh, I, I enumerated those five uh, factors in a kind of an academic paper. Right. And there's only a subset of those things that we see that are were able to be substantiated kind of in an academic level. Uh, it's not to say that there are not other factors that we see in the marketplace every day, but it's hard to get your arms around some of the numbers. Uh, with regard to those five, uh, I would start with collateral. Right. right. So at the end of the day, uh, a number of folks look at default rates, as an example, uh, and when they think about um, the, the quality or lack of quality of debt obligations. Uh, what we have seen is that uh, at the extremes, if I have incredibly weak covenants and I charge a really small coupon, well, then I can have no defaults. Right. And so people tend to, uh, agencies and other um, evaluators, look at coverage, right, meaning how much cash there is to cover the obligations that I have from my debt instrument. Well, again, if I don't charge a whole lot, then I can have high coverage and I can be comfortable. Nevertheless, I may have an actual overall obligation that's very large, and in fact, maybe larger than the, my asset value. And so we like, tend to look at leverage, not coverage. Right. And when you dis dispassionately look at the amount of leverage uh, in the system across corporate, property, uh, structured finance, consumer, uh, and, and other personal obligations out there, what you see is an enormous amount of debt. Uh, relative to the underlying asset value. And actually, you have a tremendous appreciation in asset levels. And what is not necessarily understood is the degree to which people perceive there to be substantial equity value mm -hmm. because debt is cheap. And lenders tend to, there are situations where lenders tend to price uh, very low uh, because they perceive a lot of equity value. And so those two things are not independently evaluated, right? They're, they're effectively a zero sum. Basically, you're saying that equity is the residual value with debt at the top of the stack. Correct. So there are, we're at kind of historical highs in terms of the enterprise value divided by cash flow that people are willing to pay for businesses or assets. Uh, and part of that is because we, we can access very cheap and, and, and large amounts of debt that allow us to make equity returns that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to make. At the same time, providers of debt are saying, well, this, I have real confidence that my loan to value is relatively low because of all the equity that these people with equity are willing to put in underneath me. So uh, effectively, it's like two drunken sailors keeping themselves up, right? At some point, one of them might stumble over. 
And so when you look dispassionately at the credit statistics out there, you're seeing enormous amounts of uh, debt relative to, that, to asset values. You're seeing structures that are very, very weak, where people are not appro getting appropriately protected as creditors at the top of a capital stack. You're seeing uh, terms and duration, right, which uh, effectively we have not seen um, the intrinsic risk of duration priced as low as it has for, you know, decades. Uh, you know, kind of everything is set up for such that people are not getting compensated for risk they're taking. And so if you look at uh, the stats across the, and the, we go into the second area, the, the ratings agencies, you're seeing a tremendous amount of triple B right. uh, relative yes. to the rest of high yield. Why is that? Because there's a very particular subset of investors that will only invest investment grade and above. So there are tremendous incentives to do a whole lot of kind of uh, numerical gymnastics <laughs> to be able to access a, an investment grade rating that otherwise perhaps 10 years ago wouldn't have been given in order to access that group of investors that tends to be comfortable taking a relatively low return for any given risk that they're uh, assuming. Let me let me uh, back up on two things because uh, yeah and, and by the way when you were saying that I was thinking about David Rosenberg because I spoke to him and he was talking about this too mm. and I want to get a point in about uh, you know the 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 credit quality of triple B's relative to what they were before sure but the interesting thing and I think maybe this is a rhetorical question on some level because you mentioned the Fed and and other central banks in the developed economies but why is it that we're, these investors are not being compensated for extending out for duration or for taking on the risk that they're taking on? I think it comes down to the sheer uh, supply and demand. There's only so many issuers, uh, and there's such a tremendous volume of capital that needs to be deployed and needs to attempt to get some level of return uh, that f people are willing to accept historically low levels of return um, when they think about the return they're getting relative to the al other alternatives they have. And so when you see, unfortunately, a kind of a vicious cycle where if you lower rates, right, you make that hunger for yield all that greater, right? And right. you have people who are willing to buy more of it and take less return uh, over time until, they're, until the market tells them no. So, you know, what, one of the things that hits me when you talk about this is this whole concept of servicing yes. debt. Debt service uh, cost being the marker versus leverage. Yes. Uh, to me, that smacks of uh, hubris in the sense that as soon as rates go up, those debt service costs go up, and suddenly you have uh, what seem like low default rates not become low. Sure. Well, certainly uh, that's what that's uh, certainly the case with regard to, to floating rate obligations. Uh, but ultimately, even fixed rate obligations, as they reprice, will, will um, be priced against the available floating rate and move up themselves. Uh, what I think uh, is not taken into account by investors frequently is the fact that there's a level of correlation between risk-free rates and premium to risk-free. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you see a real move up in, in risk-free rates, uh, ultimately, you frequently see you know, big moves up in spreads. Uh, and at the same time, if, that, if both both happen, you have potentially a reevaluation of the underlying asset yields necessary to appropriately compensate investors for owning assets or enterprises, and therefore a material decline in not only asset values as they proceed, but also more importantly, equity values that are subordinate, effectively leveraged right. by that debt. And so these things can spiral out of control as, as they've had in, as they have in, in prior uh, crises. That said, again, there's tremendous incentives on the part of monetary authorities to kind of uh, keep rates low. Uh, and as well as support uh, the term structure of risk through other um, means, including kind of buying obligations directly in the marketplace. So I think it, you know, while a crisis is not inevitable, it may, it may be highly likely, and in fact, it may ultimately be preferred, because I would argue that what is inevitable is either a crisis or a long-term malaise, you know, uh, mm -hmm. where, as an example, where you have Japan uh, right. already right. already at and potentially Europe going. Uh, and so that's not such a great thing either. Uh, and so we have this uh, tremendous, these tremendous number, this tremendous number of distortions happening because risk isn't appropriately priced and because price discovery is not out there. And so, and in fact, that leads to the, to the third issue, which is that uh, in addition to the fact that collateral is relatively uh, misjudged in terms of its underlying risk, 
uh, and in addition to the fact that it's not necessarily evaluated appropriately by available agencies. Uh, you have the fact that uh, in the wake of the crisis, uh, the number of people who are willing to make markets in uh, fixed income across the world are, is very low. And to the extent that they're willing, uh, their ability is, is in turn very low. And why is that? Well, I think part of it is that there's been a tremendous uh, level of pressure, perhaps rightly applied, uh, post-crisis on um, banks uh, that, that participate in market making, one, to uh, effectively put capital up against uh, certain obligations in their balance sheet mm -hmm. at levels that really preclude them from, from owning that risk in the first place. And second, uh, through the Volcker rule and, and, other, um, and, other and other rules that they have to follow, uh, there is a tremendous level of pressure for them not to effectively take a proprietary position. Right. And so, unfortunately, in over-the-counter markets, the difference between uh, making an OTC market and taking a proprietary view is very hazy. And so, why take that risk right. uh, when you, the, downside, the downside of doing so is so great? And so that means basically liquidity has been shrunken uh, over time. Tremendously so. And so, you know, as an example, we, uh, in, 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 in our business, we owned a, a few million bonds of a, of a, of a $400 million issue um, and decided after doing additional work uh, that we didn't want to be involved. And it took us almost two weeks to get out of, you know, just a couple of million bonds. And so the reality is, and that turns to a, Another factor we see out there, uh, not one of the five, but uh, as a general whole, mm -hmm. there's have and have not mentality. Right. Which is that if you are a have, whether it's corporate, again, property, consumer, et cetera, there's really no lower bound at, uh, on the level at which you can borrow. But if you are have not, there's really no price you can pay to get access. And so what happens is if, if you have an obligation of one of those have nots, uh, it's effectively a permanent holding right. until yes. if you effectively get your get your hands on the assets either through a maturity or a covenant violation, et cetera, and effectively force the monetization. And so that then leads to yet another factor, which is the mismatch in, in assets and liabilities across many of the entities that have been raised in order to house a lot of this fixed income. And so you'll see in mutual funds, shorter term, shorter duration hedge funds, ETFs, and others, situations where there's a a presumption that you'll need to, you'll be able to kind of sell the obligations in order to deal with uh, redemptions uh, that's not really there. In fact, even in the last uh, couple of years, you've had situations in Europe where there are property trusts effectively that own giant real assets that are levered, that are, you know, daily liquidity open-ended. And people somehow still are surprised when in fact, the redemptions come that they can't effectively sell those buildings on demand. And, and you know, so I call this fake liquidity basically in, in a sense that the underlying asset is illiquid and then you have uh, a, a liquid trading ETF or yes. other sort of asset on top of that and people get the sense that, you know, I can b get in and out of this when actually the underlying asset, there's a mismatch there. Right. So either you, in fact, won't be able to get out and redemptions will be suspended. Right. Or there'll be very relatively low correlation between the price of the ETF in which you're invested and the actual uh, price action in the underlying assets. Either way, you're kind of not getting what you thought you'd Interesting. get at. I mean, you know, you could see net asset values of these uh, ETFs, tr yeah, they could trade well below the stated value. You know, because I'm thinking about well, it. Well, not in open-ended, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. In open-ended uh, uh, structures, you know, the NAV is the NAV. In closed-ended, you ha can have a discount to NAV, right. right? And that's fine because there's a fixed number of shares, effectively, and those trade where they trade independent of the NAV. But when you have open-ended and you have redemptions, people actually need to get their money. Uh, and so you have things like the breaking of the buck that happened in right. in, uh, in the kind of... Um, the uh, money market Yes, in, in the money markets, right. right. And so uh, I think there has been relatively little focus by regulators on this asset liability mismatch out there because it presumes a backward-looking view at what what obligations had liquidity at one one time. So they'll be surprised. And if, if you go back to, for instance, 1998, between August and, and December, there was basically just no trading right. uh, in anything OTC. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I was rotating through at Deutsche Bank on um, 
a uh, synthetic product uh, market for Russian currency yep. uh, obligations, or actually Russian, uh, I forgot what they call them now, but basically that whole market blew up and there was no trading. Yep. People were panicked as a result of that, and that's yes. when the Fed had to step in, or, yes. you know, those companies stepped in. Well, and by the way, that leads to the fifth of the five uh, factors that I that I um, uh, wrote about, and that is that the regulatory control has been far greater now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, many years ago, people had, who had hedge funds didn't have necessarily have uh, chief compliance officers or general counsel or uh, third-party marking. Uh, there's a lot of things that um, have been instituted since those earlier times that may... Uh, mean that may point to situations where effectively people are going to shut down or or, or suspend redemptions because they can't strike a NAF. Right. Right. And so, as an example, in 07, when you saw BNP Paribas mortgage fund had issues, part of the problem was they couldn't actually strike a NAF because they couldn't get prices. And so they said, okay, well, no investors can move in or out. Right. And that in turn kind of creates panic. And, you know, to me, uh, th- this liquidity issue, uh, you know, there, there, there are tons of other things I want to go back to on those five because it's great, and t- especially with regard to the ratings agencies. But this liquidity issue, I find it very uh, pernicious. Uh, you know, when you think of potential triggers for what I would call contagion, to me, that's, that's a primary vehicle. Sure. Well, I think uh, you never know where it's going to start, right? And when you saw uh, what happened in Asia, that was... Those were issues that had arisen in the early mid '90s that didn't kind of really catch fire until '98 with the Taibot issue. Uh, I think at the same time in '07, you could have pointed to many different subsets of fixed income where pricing was really, really off. But it happened to be that it, you know the fire started in residential mortgages. What we what we all know today is that we whatever it is that will cause it will be something unexpected. Right. Whether it's something like uh, like those two situations, or there's a enormous fraud, like what happened in WorldCom, where the market suddenly repriced in the wake of uh, uh, the uh, revelations that occurred in that company, uh, you just don't know where it's going to come from. You know, uh, just to back up a second, uh, your second thing when you're talking about the ratings agencies, I thought that was interesting because. Basically, you were saying that 10 years ago, we could have had a EBITDA, you know, debt to EBITDA ratio or leverage ratio of X. Now we can have you know, 1.3X, and the ratings agencies will give us the exact same uh, rating that we had before. Why is that happening, and how is it that the ratings agencies are not uh, cracking down on that? Why, why are they letting this uh, you know, sort of slow bleed into d- basically double B statistics for right. all these triple Bs? Well, I, today's you know today's uh, triple B was yesterday's double B, and I think uh, you know I was actually invited by one of the large agencies to come in and discuss this, and I th- I don't think they'd agree with me, uh, but nevertheless I think the statistics do point to it. And furthermore, I think that um, even if you assume a static level of, as an example, debt to EBITDA, what counts as EBITDA these days is much different than before. Right. And so there are these tremendous numbers of different adjustments that are taken into account. Uh, even all things being equal with regard to the credit stats that exacerbate that issue. And so ultimately what you've seen is that uh, when the when individual names, even in the last kind of quarter or two quarters, crack, they crack big uh, because there's a total reevaluation effectively moving a credit from a have to a have not very suddenly. And there are these step functions downward in the pricing. You know, uh, w- one other issue before we go to individual asset markets that I thought, you know, just jumping back to this leverage, uh, or rather to uh, the liquidity issue that I found very interesting. I, re- I read the paper that you had co-written about these, um, about the illiquidity. And one of the things that you mentioned that caught my eye was the fact that if you have a stock, let's say the stock of GE as an example, you know, there's one stock common equity Uh, It's liquid traded over a market. But if you have a bond, first of all, as you mentioned, it's OTC where the markets happen. There's no New York Stock Exchange. But also you have discrete issues that are much smaller. And and so the liquidity is almost automatically constrained in in those markets. Yes. Well, I think, you know, um, part of where we've seen opportunity in the tradable markets is that these days, there are relatively few folks who are simultaneously looking at, as an example, bank, do- bank debt, all the bond issues, CDS, stock, and options. 
right? So there are situations where there are distortions even within capital structures. Mm -hmm. And so we see, see situations where effectively we can create cheap options, cheap put options, cheap call options through different combinations of those securities that will never require us to seek a bid from someone else, right? And so a key thing that certainly I learned uh, pre-crisis even was that in some of these OTC markets, there are a subset of um, opportunities available mm -hmm. that are effectively self-liquidating. So you can be effectively um, someone who benefits from the lack of liquidity, right, by having a bid when people don't want it in that subset of situations that are self-liquidating, so you yourself don't need that bid, right? So you're never relying on the greater fool. Well, let's go through some of these markets uh, one by one. One that uh, um, doesn't get a whole lot of mention that I find interesting because it goes to the uh, the reach for yield is private credit. Yeah. Uh, private credit. The, my understanding of it is is that people said, look, you know, uh, we're long term investors, uh, so we don't really need to have liquidity. Uh, so we can invest in these uh, private credit actions uh, and wait it out for the long term. Right. What's going on in that market? Why is that not a and, and as a result, we can get a higher yield, obviously. Right. Why is that not a a story that 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 makes sense? Well, I think the original thesis was that there was a difference between uh, obligations that were traded and or had QCIPs, mm -hmm. right, and private obligations. The underlying presumption is there's a different level of liquidity. Mm -hmm. And by not having a QCIP or not being traded on a desk, I should get paid more. Right. The reality is that difference is not really there. And the reality is that the leveraged loan markets and the middle market uh, lending markets uh, effectively price against each other. And so there's been a real harmonization between those two markets. So that's point one. Uh, point two is the, the notion that uh, you know, I'm, I'm somehow intrinsically more patient, so I don't need market-making to be there. Right. Um, may or may not be the case. However, what it doesn't take into account is effectively uh, the fact that the longer I have a debt obligation, because I'm never going to get paid more than par, right? So the longer a debt obligation I issue to a borrower, the more put optionality I'm short, right? And so effectively, I'm... I, throughout the life of that loan, I can only make my coupon, uh, but I can lose it all at any given time. Right. Right. So if, if I can only lose it all for two years versus only losing it all for 10 years, all things being equal, independent of market making capability, I'd rather have the two years than the 10 years. And when you look at the differentiation between pricing on things that are short versus long, it doesn't reflect that. And so people have been willing to effectively be super borrower friendly in that regard. Right. And that will ultimately cause problems. Third is the aforementioned drunken sailor issue, which is that uh, in the middle market, lenders are taking comfort from the fact that, well, geez, if I'm lending it seven times and an equity sponsor is putting up four times, I must, be, uh, I must have an LTV of seven divided by 11. But ultimately, the equity provider is paying that equity out to the seller. It's not somehow staying in the enterprise. And so independent of what the equity sponsor viewed to be the enterprise value of the enterprise, I'm still out seven times, right? And so, in fact, it may very well be the case that instead of seven divided by 11, my LTV is seven divided by eight. Uh, and then the question is, am I getting intrinsically and appropriately paid? The equity provider might be willing to pay, provide that four turns of equity because the pricing of my debt is so cheap that he can still make an equity return. Whereas at the same time, I, uh, take comfort somehow as a lender in lending seven times and I'm somehow then willing to charge really low because of the presence of that four times. And so the two work together to effectively overprice an asset um, and, be in, in, and put the asset in a position where the equity is disproportionately paying up but also getting, uh, t taking advantage of the uh, amount of debt, the pricing of right. debt, and the duration of debt as well as the structure of it. Related to that, I guess, is leveraged loans. When um, in that, uh, when we're talking about uh, this market for bank loans, yeah. uh, there's a there's a tradable market for bank loans, leveraged loans, and a lot of people talk about high yield and leveraged loans uh, as a collective market, which is of the size of the mortgage market. Right. So dislocations there could be a trigger point uh, in a crisis situation. 
What's going on in those markets, and uh, do you think there are opportunities there? Well, I think uh, there there are clearly ultimately going to be opportunities because the credit statistics don't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. If there is a reason that those opportunities may present themselves, it's because a number of middle market lenders themselves are levered, right? Typically two to three debt to equity uh, in their own capital structures, which they're then using to make loans to uh, issuers. And in fact, even more CLOs are you know, 10 or more times levered uh, and owning these obligations. Now, the those who are sanguine about those markets say, well, versus previous times, uh, uh, there are there's a level of asset liability matching between uh, the owners of CLOs and the and the capital structures of the CLOs and the underlying obligations. True. However, uh, that doesn't take into account the fact that there are effectively triggers in the capital stacks of CLOs that may shut off distributions to certain pieces of those. And furthermore, that in fact, while it was the case that a lot of that really bad CLO equity did come all the way back post-crisis, that doesn't take into account the diminution in the quality of the collateral, as well as the intrinsic notion of, uh, you know, if I am a semi-institutional owner of uh, CLO equity and I get a statement saying my equity is down 90 cents, you know, am I going to just calmly uh, be able to tell my stakeholders that, you know, somehow it's going to be okay if we all just wait a decade, right? right? The answer is probably not. Uh, and so there's a lot of reasons why the, there can be issues. And again, in the last couple of quarters, we've seen that arise where uh, a given leverage loan that is relatively low quality mm -hmm. has turned out to be owned almost exclusively by CLOs. And when you take that issue and the fact that they don't want to be, they don't want to own collateral that could cause triggers in their own CLO structures and they want it, and you combine that with the fact that there's relatively little market making and in fact, relatively little ability to even get information on the credit. What you have is that when there are issues in those underlying credits, all of the owners of it want to sell all at the same time and have a, a bunch of buyers who are not located, a bunch of intermediaries who are not transacting, and information that's not well uh, distributed in, in order to make a market happen. And so what you've seen then is step function down pricing, right, until it finally clears at some really uh, tough level. And, and doesn't that have a knock-on effect to the other issuers that are within that same collateralized loan obligation? Yes. Uh, well, this is a great example of one of the factors that I considered putting in the paper, but mm -hmm. it was hard to get numbers around in order to substantiate an academic level. What we've seen anecdotally is you suddenly start to have uh, credits that are owned by different uh, structures, different organizations, different funds, different CLOs, each of whom have their own particular interests in situations. Right. And we've seen firsthand situations where, as an example, a creditor is willing to do things that are really unnaturally generous to the equity owner in order to not acknowledge the credit problem that's there because they don't want to trigger something in their own, uh, in their own structures that may hurt their own credit. And so at the, if that happens and you happen to be a creditor that just wants its money back, you're going to have conflict not only with your borrower, but with your fellow lenders. You know, at a sort of macro level, when we talk about uh, CLOs, uh, collateralized loan obligations, to, uh, to me it strikes of mortgage-backed securities in the sense that you're taking uh, credit and you're putting it into a structure, slicing and dicing and so forth. Can you give viewers a sense of what's going on in that market, what's going on in the whole collateralized debt obligation market, and how CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, are coming to be an outsized portion of that market? Well, I think uh, what you fundamentally, if you kind of boil it down, what you have going on in that market is very similar to what you had in the mortgage market, which is that ultimately it's very unclear who wears the risk. Mm. And mm. so there's a tremendous amount of incentive, of incentive throughout the chain of value for more and more paper to be issued and very few people thinking about what the outcome is going to be. Right? right. Why is that? Well, because if you look at these very leveraged structures, in many instances, the manager of that leverage structure is not the owner of the residual risk in that structure. There, for a time, were rules around creating what they call skin in the game, 
where the bottom, where the manager needed to have exposure to the obligations. Those were effectively uh, taken away again. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is there's a whole lot of people who own that risk without managing at the same time. And so therefore, if I'm a manager who's taking no risk, my incentive is just to manage more under any circumstance right. because I'm not going to be suffering the consequences. Similarly, in the residential mortgage markets, you had that times two, which was that not only do you have uh, that do you have that same dynamic, but you had uh, originators who weren't going to wear the risk, right? Who just needed to originate it. Owners, uh, managers of the risk, who just needed to own collateral of some sort and weren't taking the risk. Right? And on top of that, you had effectively uh, managers who were able to get short certain of the obligations. So not only were they not interested in the positive outcome of the deal, <laughs> they were interested in the negative right. outcome of the deal. It sounds right? just like the mortgage market. In yes, that way. yeah. And so I have, we haven't seen people materially, uh, I have yet to hear of CLO managers writing see it effectively getting long protection in components of their deals, uh, but every other piece of the bad incentive cycle or structure is there. Right. Interesting. Um, one market that uh, I think that you expressed some interest in before uh, we got on camera was about the commercial property market. Uh, you know, when you talk about commercial property, I mean, it goes back to the story I was telling you about uh, with the High Line and, uh, and how I used to live there 20 years ago and how it's just unbelievable how much building's going on there. That yeah. at some point, it seems to me that, you know, that, that's not going to come, come to good. Yes. What, what's going on in that market and what are the pitfalls there? Well, I think throughout um, uh, uh, urban markets in the U.S., you're seeing you know very very high prices driven again by access to capital and the and the cheap pricing of capital, mm -hmm. and that's not only with regard to existing uh, assets, but also it's very much encouraged the building of new assets, and so I think if you if you surveyed people in a number of the largest uh, uh, city markets in the U.S., what you'd see is. Uh, occupancies are starting to get shaky. Rental levels are starting to get shaky. The ability to sell out condos is starting to get choppy. And there are a number of people with construction loans that are very nervous. And so we like those situations. In fact, in, in, uh, in Manhattan, we, we purchased the mortgage loan of a, of a situation where there was, um, you would have thought it would have been a relatively easy sellout. Well, whereas, unfortunately, we're going to have to go to a, effectively a, a multifamily rental uh, business plan in order to make it work because the bid's not there on the condo side. And that's already happening and showing itself. And when you look at this, are you looking at it from the long side or the short side in terms of here's a here's a distressed market yeah. and I could get in long or this is a distressed market and I think that actually bad things are going to happen? Both, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in, directly, in, in direct obligations, we're, we're, we are and are looking to buy existing obligations at discounts. Um, either to reprice or restructure um, commercial real estate assets, uh, but also looking to make new loans in situations where people are stuck in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, within the tradable markets, there are certain situations where you can create either short situations or, or cheap put options. For instance, uh, in situations where, as an example, a lender might have uh, that, that's publicly traded might have overlent to some of these urban markets, mm -hmm. and you can create a, uh, a structure using different uh, uh, capital structure components that leaves you effectively net short the outcome there in a very, very leveraged uh, commercial real estate lender that is exposed to these markets. So that, only, that actually allows us to create a very interesting, compelling, cheap put option, but also one that's inversely correlated to a lot of the other bets we have. Right. And which markets in particular do you find interesting? Uh, you mentioned New York. Any other markets that you're interested in? Uh, we've been involved recently in uh, in Miami, uh, mm -hmm. San Francisco, L.A. Uh, I think you're Chicago. Uh, we're involved in all of them. And I think you're seeing the very beginnings of real issues there. And again, those have been fueled by cheap access to debt financing, cheap access to securitization markets, uh, and this kind of hunger for yield. Uh, and so I think we'll we'll see that uh, moving along. One one other question I had on that is that when you talk about commercial real estate, there is the business side that is uh, you know where I'm renting out to businesses, but there's also I'm renting out to families, multifamilies, et cetera. Sure. And then there are within uh, the family uh, sector there are levels 
uh, you know, there's the entry, mid-level, sure. luxury, super luxury. Yes. Now, anecdotally, I understand that uh, at the very high end, there's a, a tremendous amount of overbuilding yes. in Miami in particular. Yep. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, uh, there has been. We we actually are a very significant residential mortgage lender in in Miami mm -hmm. uh, and and near, in related markets. Uh, we do it in a way where we're focusing on non-U.S. citizens, mm -hmm. and so instead of lending eighty percent uh, for ten to thirty years at four percent, we're lending fifty-five percent for two years at twelve percent. Uh, and so we are creating those positions at the level that we're lending at levels equivalent to where they would have traded in two thousand eight. And so we feel relatively protected from uh, what may come, and in fact, may be a beneficiary of what may come. But yes, we've seen not only, we've definitely seen prices move down at least 10 to 20% across the board there. Uh, we've seen uh, the ability to sell condos uh, go down significantly. We've seen people get stuck in, in construction loans. And so it's, again, I would call it a first or second inning opportunity, uh, but we're gonna see a bunch of it. And when you think opportunity, again, short, long, that was an opportunity on the long side that you were talking about, yeah. but what about on the other side of that? Well, uh, actually the, the commercial lender that's publicly traded that we're net short is a, is a big, uh, has a big exposure that's, it, that itself is 10 times levered in that market. Right, interesting. Yeah, in that situation where effectively uh, we've set up a trade where we are long a put uh, and short a call spread, uh, that uh, where that package effectively doesn't expire until after the election. Right. And the election, uh, what's the significance of that date? Well, the thought was perhaps on one side you'd have a guy who's no longer interested in jawboning rates down mm -hmm. or someone who is far less uh, interested in kind of the uh, positive benefits for commercial actors. Uh, right. Either way, that may not be good for yields. And you know the interesting bit about that is because we didn't we haven't talked about politics at all during this whole thing. I mean, 2020 is a, an election year, pivotal in some ways. Do you think that that uh, it, what sort of impact do you think that's going to have on debt markets in general, or could have on debt markets? Because that's one. Uh, I do. I, I, it could be. I think that um, uh, on the Republican side, uh, if there's a Republican win, I think you're going to see. Um, relative stability, uh, mm. relative to where we are today. Although, as I said, you may either have less incentive, uh, unless unless he uh, decides to have a third term, right, uh, yes. there's less incentive to effectively jawbone rates down, and there's certainly a greater chance, all things being equal, of creating a geopolitical issue. On the other side, depending on who you have, I think if you have a Biden presidency, everything is just going to be fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have a far left uh, presidency, if you think about, if you look at the UK election, and you saw some of the policies that the Corbyn uh, folks right. were proposing, those could cause real, uh, some things like that could cause real havoc. The interesting bit is, is, is that, you know, this dichotomy that you're presenting does uh, leave the potential for a uptick, not only in rates, when you took look at the term structure, but also in terms of spread. Yes. Uh, so that could trigger some of the things that we're talking about in terms of a phase shift in terms of, uh, you know, those on the weaker end sure. uh, starting to default. Yeah. Well, I think uh, uh, there are a lot of um, places where that could be, that could happen. Mm -hmm. uh, again, geopolitical is a big one. Uh, but, you know, I think you could see a large-scale large fraud. I think we've seen things like Steinhoff and others where they're not quite the kind of global issues of an Enron or a WorldCom. Uh, but there are, have been these very generous credit markets have allowed people to manipulate numbers. It's the you bezel, know. if you will. Yeah. You know, like uh, John uh, Kenneth Galbraith said, yeah. that we don't see the bezel now. Yes, yes. You know, uh, and so, uh, you know, as Buffett said, when the, tides, when the tide goes out, you see who has a bathing suit on or not. And so there's, a, I think, a lot of things that have been covered up. If we didn't have the crisis, we would have never had, we've never, would have never seen Madoff, right? It was only because of the crisis and the fact that his invest, a number of his investors needed to redeem in order to cover other obligations, that the fact of the matter of his uh, operation came to light. And so who knows what such things can bring? Now, uh, one last thing in terms of markets, it's less sexy. Uh, the investment grade market, uh, opportunities there that you might see uh, either long or short? 
Uh, I think we're, when it comes to that world, um, all things being equal, we're probably most in, interested in municipals. Mm. Um, many years ago, I created one of the earlier uh, businesses focused on distressed municipal finance. Mm -hmm. And because of the fact uh, that you have a relatively slow uh, world with a lot of investment-grade holdings, a lot of which are not general obligations and are product, property or project-specific, there's a lot of small issues out there that you know, are going to create Gonna, gonna have problems. And so that's an area we've begun to look at again. All of these things cycle back, you know, good and bad over time. Right, and then and, the GOs in terms of uh, versus the uh, specific obligations, yeah. which ones are present uh, the most problems in a downturn scenario? Well, there's clearly already basket cases brewing, right? right. Things like uh, Illinois and Connecticut, et cetera. The issue there is what price is the right price? You know, there's no limit to the lack of responsibility of those, of those governments. Uh, and so, uh, you know, handicapping how that's going to go is very difficult. I would argue that when you see situations like that, it creates situation-specific opportunities because, again, the baby's getting thrown out with the bathwater. Right. So as an example, in Puerto Rico, we're very active across a number of different underlying collateral types, but have never been involved in the GOs because right. it's... There's so many things that are hard to, uh, again, hard to kind of handicap, hard to guess how they'll go. It's, it's, for us, it's very hard to take a view. So, I mean, on the long side, basically, if you know, if you do your homework and you say this particular asset or this uh, income stream is what's behind this particular asset, you can actually do well when they throw the baby out with the bathwater. When that's the case, and as well, there's a trigger that will allow you to actually realize the pricing distortion, mm -hmm. right? Is there a maturity or a covenant violation or some other thing that will allow me to actually get at the asset, sell it off, and effectively monetize the difference between the price at which I'm paying and the, and the, and the level at which I'll realize? The people get hurt in situations like, for instance, when the convertible mark bond market exploded in 05. Generally, convertible bonds are very long dated with very few covenants. And so you're just kind of sitting there waiting for a greater fool to take you out. And furthermore, in that case, a lot of those players were, were leveraged. And so they needed to seek a bid however they could get it. And so at that point, we went from you know zero to half a billion dollars worth of that. And then people started to come back in the market and we got back out again. And so we again, we, will, we always want to be on the right side of that uh, of that equation where we are a uh, effectively a, a global chaser of illiquidity and are providing mm -hmm. a market, uh, effectively a market making function to people who have no other option. Right. Let's dive in a little deeper into this, uh, the CLO thing, because a lot of people are very interested in this. Yeah. I think that the, the question is, is uh, in terms of the specific structures that you're looking at to uh, take positions there, how do you take advantage of uh, what's happening in that space? Well, uh, part of the reason why what's happening is happening is because there are very few ways by which you can effectively get short that scenario, right. that, that, those situations. Um, to contrast, in contrast, in the mortgage business, mm -hmm. uh, pre-crisis, um, when people created mortgage securities or even uh, mortgage securities made up of mortgage securities, there was a pretty ready market by which you could effectively create uh, credit default swaps right. to take a view against those. The As a result of what happened in the crisis and the lack of market making that's out there, the degree to which you can kind of be very nimble about using CDS in order to get short components of structured finance uh, structures is very much reduced. And, and why is that? Because uh, a lot of people got murdered doing it or <laughs> trying to do it. And, right. and, and ultimately, a lot of that um, uh, was predicated on... Uh, situations where perhaps everyone had the same amount of data, but there were different levels of ability to understand and interpret the data, and so people didn't feel good about it. Uh, you know, when when the because uh, this is like a bespoke market, basically. Yes. Right. Yes, and so uh, we have yet to see opportunities to effectively get short structured uh, obligations within stacked securitized right. capital structures using CDS. Right. What you can do is. Uh, use CDS in credits in corporate credit specific ways, and you can do that um, uh, against different parts of a given company's capital structure. Mm -hmm. We'd love to do things like that within CLOs. It's just no one will take the other side of it. Right. Uh, and so that will 
potentially allow it to persist. But on the downside, it may allow it to persist such that the distortions are so great that when it explodes, it really explodes big, right? Within uh, corporate-specific situations, uh, as an example, there are situations where we can be long uh, a bank loan, long credit protection to create uh, a basis differential that'll effectively uh, collapse because they're two of the very same things. Or we can effectively uh, use puts um, or other long-dated options in order to create situations where, as an example, we are long a mid-tier part of a very large energy company's capital structure, but we're also long a very long-dated out-of-the-money put. Mm -hmm. And so having set that up, we know that there's a very small bound of points we can lose, and anything better than that is kind of ups, right? And so we, so you may not actually create a cheap put option. In that case, you would create a cheap call option. But the reality is that these uh, pricing distortions within capital structures provide opportunities to create cheap optionality off the back of the market. And these are, what sort of uh, uh, duration are you talking about in terms of uh, how this... Uh, within three years, mm -hmm. typically. One other market that I think is interesting, and I think in particular because a, uh, you know, a big debt manager said that he expects uh, defaults in emerging markets in 2020. Emerging markets are generally considered, you know, moving out the risk spectrum in the same way that, you know, high yield would be. Yeah. What's going on in that market in terms of this, uh, this reach for yield? Yes. Well, uh, over time, all things being equal in a given kind of industry uh, or business, you'll see people uh, demand a premium if they're going into, you know, an emerging market. And so ultimately, they're taking a view on a on a sovereign and its um, and its effective effective uh, fiscal sanity, uh, as well as its adherence to to the rule of law. And so I think what we've seen is that the degree to which uh, you know sovereign finances are are managed appropriately uh, is very different among different emerging markets. Uh, uh, similarly, even within a given emerging market, as regimes change, as governments change, the degree to which those governments act responsibly can vary quite a bit. And so what it creates is real volatility. Mm -hmm. And so when everything is comfortable, well, then, you know, you take you get your little extra 100 bips on this oil company versus that developed market oil company, and you're happy. But again, when you see the what reality is, is there's a, there's a correlation, right? So when risk-free moves up, spread moves up, perceived issues within a given uh, series of markets move, move out, you have real problems. And those are then further exacerbated by the fact that a lot of this is intermediated, right, by people who aren't making markets. And a lot of it's held in structures that are relatively short duration and don't take into account the lack of the intermediation that's there. So when we think about emerging markets, uh, you know, like in many situations, we want to own the volatility for free, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you see those explosions, at times, it creates babies that are thrown out with the bathwater that you can take advantage of. And so, as an example, we find ourselves at times looking at, you know, busted assets in Greece, or we're right. looking at private transactions now in, in Brazil, or, or we've done things in Argentina, at precisely the time when people are really uh, kind of freaking out, right? And are, are these more on the uh, public or the private side in terms of the issuers? Uh, typically, they are private side transactions mm -hmm. that are able to get priced because uh, of what's happening in the kind of broader universe. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now, I think that's a perfect example, a good lead-in into what we're talking about in terms of opportunities. Uh, and you've already talked about that, owning the volatility. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, some of the things that you could do in CLOs. Where are, from your perspective, given the outlook that you're uh, seeing uh, on a sort of a macro level, where do you see opportunities in debt markets going forward? Uh, well, it really depends on the geography. Mm -hmm. uh, today in North America, um, I think we're very interested in non-sponsored you know, private corporate debt transactions. Uh, we're very interested in, in the whole universe of funds, meaning buying and selling interest in funds, lending to funds, because the wrapping in the funds in a fund structure precludes normal kind of uh, corporate-oriented lenders from being involved, there are frequently opportunities, and there's been such an explosion of issuance of those funds, and there are so many misalignments of interest among LPs and between GPs and LPs, I think that will be a, an opportunity for years and years to come. We're also very interested in North America in uh, oil and gas, mm -hmm. which has basically been completely redlined by the banks. 
who you know periodically effectively take price bets. Uh, we like oil and gas where we don't have to take bets on oil and gas prices. Uh, and so there are times when everyone wants to do oil and gas and you know the Enrons are there and the Merits are there and uh, no price is too low. And then there are times when it all explodes and no one wants to touch it. And in the latter instance, we're, we're involved. And actually, now in the last 20 plus years, this is the third time we've been heavily involved in that Interesting. area. Now, so you don't think that uh, the oil and gas is, is due, especially because of maturities coming forward to, uh, for a, a difficult period where you know rollover of debt causes sort of a, a problem in that, uh, in that space? Oh, I think, it, I think it very well could be. I think there's a lot of... Um, in the tradable markets within energy, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of misinformation or bad information about underlying asset values that has yet to kind of make itself known. Uh, without we're getting too specific, basically within oil and gas tradable markets, uh, there are ways to look at the uh, the uh, quality of different types of assets. You mm-hmm. know, so as an example, there's a notion of pre- proved developer producing which is basically I stick a straw on the ground and it comes right up and it, all the metal's there to, in order to make that happen. And then there's proved developed non-producing and then there's proved, proved undeveloped and then there's probables and then there's kind of lower levels of probables. And so in the private markets, uh, where when, when we get involved, mm-hmm. we only care about the stuff that it doesn't take a geology degree to understand. Right. When you look at the way credit has been provided to those markets, there's a lot of assumptions about uh, exploration risk that are embedded um, that will leave people incredibly disappointed. And so uh, I think there's a real opportunity for that to happen, but it could, it might not because of the same factors we've talked about with regard to develop, you know, monetary authorities and the overall overprovision of credit. What I am certain of is that in the private markets where you're not getting agency ratings, where you're not getting large leverage loans, there are very few options available. And so I'm quite certain that there are opportunities where, again, the non-geologists out there can make very limited, low LTV, high rate bets that where we are able to effectively self force our borrowers to sell forward the commodity. So we're not taking commodity risk mm-hmm. and we can charge, you know, 15 or 20 plus percent. It sounds like you're talking about both the uh, the short as well as the long side. Yeah. So rather than uh, finish off talking about the short side, I want to talk about the one last point that you made about uh, the monetary authorities. Yeah. Because a lot of this, uh, you know, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about Europe uh, Japan and the United States, and you know there are two potential ways that we could go. And it sounds to me like there is the potential for, given the fact that debt servicing costs are low and the and increasing rates uh, creates the potential for exactly the kinds of uh, crisis situations that we're talking about. Th- that we just keep going at this very low, sure. uh, you know, stasis level, turn into the next Japan. Yeah. Uh, do you really think that monetary authorities won't be there as the buyer of last resort, essentially to bail out the system if the situation uh, starts to unravel? Well, it depends on how much, uh, how much uh, freedom of movement they have at a given time, right? So if you haven't been raising rates and if you haven't been curtailing or buying, and it's time to start, uh, you know, lowering rates and buying, um, you ha- don't have many more bullets in the gun, right? And so I think they're trying to gently, you know, reload so that they can be there. Uh, but ultimately, when you're not, what ultimately is going to happen is you're going to damage those who are the savers, those who are responsible by debasing your currency, because that's the only way it ultimately works, right? Which is you service the debt with devalued currency, and you become basically a giant emerging market. And you think basically that that's one way that we could go in the United States uh, or we can deal with the problem head on? Yeah, I think there's very little incentive for it to be dealt with head on. And so ultimately, if a crisis arises, I don't think it's going to come in the way that it did, as an example, in the in the 80s, where Paul Volcker, to Volcker point mm-hmm. 1.0 right. took a stand, made rates uh, appropriately priced risk, and effectively caused some short-term pain for long-term gain. Uh, the will uh, of you know central uh, government monetary authorities to do that kind of thing, I think, is very low, uh, and so I wouldn't hold my breath for that. 
And so therefore, if we see something, you know, precipitate a crisis, it'll be one of these things that, you know, none of us counted on, whether it's geopolitical or uh, fraud related or whatever it is, that'll kind of cause an issue. Uh, where that comes from, who knows? It's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, this has been a great soup to nuts conversation on debt. I really appreciate it, Dan. Thanks for, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.